I would suggest as a rule of thumb that young people do more listening than speaking at the beginning only because um, you can't listen and talk at the same time and you really need to know everything there is to be known in order to make a useful contribution. Welcome to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom, a podcast where we provide insights, tips, and inspiration for college students and young professionals so they can make a really successful transition from college life to the professional world and beyond. My name is Andy Malinsky, and I'm your host. I'm also a professor of organizational behavior and international management at Brandeis University's International Business School, where we record and produce this podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Angela Duckworth is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, the founder and CEO of Character Lab a nonprofit whose mission is to advance the science and practice of character development. But you probably know her best as the author of the book Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, which was a number one New York Times bestseller. I think Angela has a great story to tell all of us about life and career transitions, which is really what this podcast is all about. In her late 20s, Angela left a demanding job as a management consultant to teach math to 7th graders in the New York City public schools. Several years in the classroom taught her that effort was tremendously important to success and to begin to solve the mystery of why some people work so much harder and longer than others. Angela entered the PhD program in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she is now a professor. I am so honored that Angela has agreed to join us here on the podcast today. Welcome, Angela. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So uh, I'd love to start by hearing a bit about uh, what you do now. Uh, What's your job? How long have you been doing this job? Do you like it? <laughs> I love what I do. And I always ask people when I sit next to them on an airplane, do you love what I do? In fact, I asked that question before I asked, you know, who are you? You know, where, where'd you grow up? Um, I am a psychologist and I am trying to help kids do better in life in every sense of the word of better. And I am a professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm the CEO and founder of a nonprofit called Character Lab. And where did you go to college? Actually, a a couple of questions. Where did you go to college? What did you major in? Did you like college? And you know, just in general, tell us about your college experience. Uh, I went to Harvard. I'm um, class of '92, so I went to Harvard a long time ago. And I um, was a neurobiology major in part because I was failing neurobiology the course, and it was about the time that. You know, you get advice from professors. The professor said you should drop the course. And I asked, you know, like, where's the registrar? You know, it's like, oh, it's up the street. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to go over to the registrar. And I did. And instead of dropping the course, I, um, you know, very obstinately, maybe grittily decided to major in it to, to prove him wrong. I was a very determined student. I think I got a lot out of my college experience. But I will say this if you just say, you know, of all the days that you were in school as an undergraduate, how many days were you really happy and relaxed? I would say very few. So I have a lot of empathy for young people who are navigating those troubled waters between the ages of 18 and 22. And for some people, of course, a little older. But um, yeah, the college was really hard for me. I was a, you know, a young adult and that's a hard thing to be. 
And so when you were majoring in neurobiology, did you have a sense of what was going to come next? Because it sounds like it was hard, but then you decided you want to stick with it. Were you sticking with it for some career uh, idea or was it just because you know you, you kind of just wanted to stick with it? I, I I think I had some idea that you know maybe I would go into medicine or into medical research. Uh, you know, like most young adults, I didn't quite know. I was very jealous, actually, and I still am, of people who know so early in life that you know you ask them when they're eighteen and they have like the next four decades mapped out. That was not me. Um, I didn't know, and in fact, you know my my life path took a couple of turns and I ended up not going to medical school and, and actually not becoming a neurobiologist per se. I'm a psychologist, which is uh, pretty different. Hmm. So, so, so then that, that's actually a great segue. And immediately after college, what did you do? Actually, maybe even take yourself back to that senior year, you know, thinking of what you were going to do. I remember mine. You know, what, what were you going to do at, after college? What were you thinking? What was going to be your first job? You know, what was that mindset like? What were you thinking? What you're feeling? It's, it's, as much as you can remember. I was I was pre med at a point, which is almost a default when you're a biology or a neurobiology major. You know, you look to your left, you look to your right. Kind of everybody's pre med, or it feels that way. So I guess I would say that I was pre med. Also, my father wanted me to go to medical school. Um, so there were a lot of forces pushing me in the direction of taking the MCAT and then going to medical school, either for an MD or an MD-PhD. But a funny thing happened on the way to medical school, and that is that I started working with kids in the neighborhoods that were just near our campus. And in sharp contrast to the like green lawns and the, you know, lecture halls, uh, you know, that dated back, you know, centuries, uh, like cathedrals of knowledge, when I went into the schools that were just a stone's throw away, I saw, you know, I saw poverty, I saw um, inequality, I saw um, kids who uh, were four grade levels below where they should be, even by the time they were in fifth grade. So that put me on a different course. I ended up starting a school, a summer school and an after school program right after college. We opened two weeks after I, I you know, received my diploma. And so I have ever since then been working in education and trying to figure out how to get kids to be more successful, happier and healthier. Wow. So that's pretty entrepreneurial. Did you did you do that on your own? Did did you? Was it through Harvard? Was it? Yeah, tell us. Um, well, I I do have um, maybe a bit of a social entrepreneur streak. So yeah, when I had this idea, um, and and by the way, I think like like many people, it wasn't really my idea. So I had gone to teach in a summer school program um, the summer before my senior year, and it was called Summer Bridge in New Orleans, and it was not my idea, but it was a brilliant idea, which is to get young people like me to teach even younger kids. So these were middle school kids. So it was older kids teaching younger kids for a summer. And I taught Biology 101. And I also created a course called Ecology 101. So we learned about the environment. And I worked harder than I've ever worked in my life. And I had already been a hard worker at that point. But I remember what it felt like to be bone tired for the first time in my life, but also to feel fulfilled, to feel like I had a purpose. And so I came back to Harvard that year and um, and I told my dad, actually, um, and my mom that I was going to not take the MCATs and I was not going to go to medical school after college. I was going to start a summer program for low-income kids. And um, you know, I think my dad stopped speaking to me for a few months. But um, uh, it, it was not just me being invincible. I, 
I not only inherited this good idea from some educators in New Orleans, I just wanted to replicate it. I also had just an enormous network of people who were, you know, some of them were professors and administrators at Harvard and MIT who said like, I'll let you use this dorm. I'll introduce you to this wealthy person. And then also people in the Cambridge public schools. I just last week spoke to the assistant superintendent who was at that time the um, the decision maker who let me in. And I said to her, um, you know, thank you. Because if it weren't for people like that, you know, young people who have a bit of a social entrepreneur streak, I don't think anybody can get anywhere. It's not about I think being you know invincible, it's really about having the support of a lot of people. And it sounds like it, just from hearing your story too that you, you know a lot of people I think when they think about being an entrepreneur or doing something new, they think in very grandiose terms like I'm going to start the next Facebook, I'm going to start the next you know Google. But it sounds like you you really kind of in a very grounded way like thought about your experience, reflected on it, went that stone's throw away from where you were, saw a challenge, saw a problem, tried to solve it, used your resources like very locally. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I generally think that's how um, not only good social entrepreneurship ideas come from, but as an academic, I will tell you that most great research just comes from your own experience and seeing something very, very close up and then realizing you know, what you want to do about it, what you want to learn more. I, I don't know anybody who's really come to a good idea, either in changing the world or in, in studying something academically that didn't take that path. And so my next question was, I think you might have answered, but uh, it's actually, when did you finally figure out what you wanted to do for a living? And it sounds like we, we've heard a bit about it, but there must have been a transi- transition from, I guess, running and creating that school to where you are now. Uh, do you want to say a bit about that? The the idea of starting a summer school and an after school program was one chapter, and that was the chapter between the ages of twenty two and twenty four. And then there were several others. I was a management consulting, uh, you know, a McKinsey consultant uh, for a year. I went to Oxford and studied neuroscience. I was a classroom teacher for several years. I ran a nonprofit. Um, there were many chapters then. Then I was 32 and I was wondering what the next chapter would be. But really, actually, I wanted to know what the rest of the book was going to be. And I think for many people, there is a feeling of, you know, I know I'm a hard worker. I know I have a lot of energy. I know vaguely what I care about, but I don't know particularly what I, what I want to do with my life and my career. And I felt that way myself after many nights of crying on the couch to my husband and feeling a bit lost. Um, I, I really actually took this top down approach. I was like, okay. Who am I? And what am I good at? And what do I enjoy? And I kind of put it together almost like a math problem. I was like, all right, I am somebody who really cares about kids, but I also love you know, understanding human behavior. And I saw these problems that were essentially motivational in kids that I wanted to understand better and work on. I knew I liked math. I was a math teacher before, so that meant I like statistics. I like to write. I kind of put it all together and I thought, you know what? I should become a psychology researcher and professor and work on these problems and there, thereby you know, make an effect in education, maybe not through being a teacher, which I had been, maybe not through starting a school. Um, and so that's how I found my path. And it took me a full decade between 22 and 32 to figure that out. Wow, it sounds like you used your McKinsey consulting approach to figure out your own life. <laughs> I did, I did. It was a, a little bit McKinsey, a little bit of logic there, and you know that's very McKinsey. So you know, but I, but you know, when when people knock on my door and they're twenty two, twenty five, twenty six, fr- frankly, you know, any age, and they tell me that they're they're kind of tortured. You know, they're like wringing their hands trying to figure out what to do. 
you know, I, I can empathize with that. I really, I really can. I was not one of those people who knew what they wanted to do when they were, you know, eight years old. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think I have a, a similar story. So, so, so it's, it's now time for the sort of advice section of our discussion. Um, would love to hear um, some advice you have for, for students and young professionals. And, and so our first question is, what two to three uh, real misconceptions do you think young professionals have when entering the workplace? Um, I think one uh, misconception is that if you don't you know, have a calling in your first job, then you shouldn't um, really throw yourself into it with passion. My um, maybe most important piece of advice for people who are having that first job is to, you know, understand their commitment. Doesn't mean you're going to work there for the rest of your life, but it maybe you've committed for a year, maybe you've committed for two. I think that should be clear between you and your your manager so that they're not left in the lurch. And then I would really say, you know, um, when you've made that commitment, you know, even if it's not forever, just throw yourself into it. Be amazing. You know, learn as much as you can, contribute as much as you can. Your recommendation and the network that you build, but also just your integrity. Um, these are all reasons not kind of, you know, phone it in or like do the bare minimum. Um, and young people who I know who are like, well, I know I don't want to do this forever. So I'm going to work from nine to five and then I'm going to, you know, do lots of other stuff afterwards. I, I often find that these are people who don't have a great next chapter because honestly, you know, Nobody's going to be opening doors for them after that. Yeah, that's that's very true. And in looking back, with so we talked a little bit about your skills from college, that you your neurobiology major and so on. So if you do look back, which skills and knowledge from college ended up being useful for your career? And and can you think of something you expected to be helpful, but 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 that wasn't? Uh, one technique that I developed when I was in college, um, you know, I was very intimidated. I went to a public school, a large, you know, New Jersey public school, and then I went from there to Harvard. And um, it's very intimidating when you're sitting next to kids who went to, you know, Andover, who did, they're just so much more sophisticated, at least than I was, right? And they, you know, it, it felt to me like they'd already been in college for three years, and I was like this bumpkin, and I, I didn't know how to. To study right, I didn't know how to read as much as you know we were assigned to read, and I really did struggle myself. Um, one of the things I learned that helped me a lot is that when I was in lecture, I sat in the front row, and I leaned forward and I hung on the professor's every word. I was the opposite of you know a multitasker, um, and I think that's helped me uh, ever since. You know, when I'm in a really really difficult position, I mean, I just concentrate entirely as opposed to, you know, kind of like, oh, well, I'll, I'll sort of pay attention, but I'll also like, I'll make it up later. You know, I'll study what, what happened later. I think, you know, that undivided attention that I learned to do by necessity has actually helped me um, in many, in many ways afterwards. In terms of unexpected, um, you know, like something that I did or picked up that surprised me later on, you know, I will say that, you know, there are things where you you think like, oh, this isn't going to be important to me. I remember I took this one class on ancient Chinese bronze um, sculptures, and um, it was just so boring to me. I was like, I do not care. I like can't see another urn. But I do remember actually in that class when I when I did what I just said, I like I leaned forward. I like I I paid attention. I mean, I hung on the professor's words. Um, you know, the professor actually had a very simple point in that class, which is that you know, civilization comes from the concentration of resources. And I remember thinking at the time, like, well, this will never be helpful to me, like ancient Chinese bronzes and their history. But I will tell you that now, 
over 25 years later, some of the basic things that that professor was saying about the nature of history and the nature of innovation, you know, I do think about. And, um, and that is why I think even if you at the moment think like, oh, I'll never use this again, um, you never know. And in many ways, I think that the, the little things I picked up on the way, um, they do weave back into what I'm doing now. Oh, that's interesting. The urns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, three-legged uh, urns. Many, I many three-legged this, urns. <laughs> I had this image of you in class. Um, so, so actually switching gears slightly in, in, in a third question. Um, and my, my question is, in your view, what does it mean to be a great leader? And I know it's kind of a grandiose question, but I do also know that you've had some leadership experience. So you know, what, what's your view of, of what, it, what it means, what it takes to be a great leader? I guess a great leader brings about things that wouldn't have happened without them. And I think most great leaders do that in at least two ways. One is by having a vision for something that nobody else can see quite as sharply as you can. And then and then you set it down and then everyone says, oh my gosh, that's obvious. Or like, yes, we should do that. Um, the second way that a great leader is a great leader is they, they, they basically bring out the best in the individuals who are working with them. So um, under their leadership, people are inspired. Under their leadership, they are developed. They're getting feedback on um, how they can improve. Um, I will not classify myself actually as a great leader. I actually don't think I am. Uh, and it's not false humility. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good leader, but I'm working actually now with a young guy who grew up in Miami's um, uh, son of two Cuban immigrants, and he's 26. So he's um, just about half my age, you know, a little bit more than that. And on, on both those counts, I look at him and I think, well, I might be um, a slightly more advanced psychologist, but, um, but you're in both of these categories in terms of having strategic vision and also bringing out the best. Um, like you're a better leader. And um, I think part of uh, doing anything is also recognizing your limitations. And so as I've, as I've kind of figured that out, I'm, I've let him do... Um, Actually, more of the leadership than you know when when it comes to running our nonprofit. That's great. So humility, in some ways, is uh, <laughs> is is important to being a leader as well. Letting someone else take take the lead. So, uh, if you could offer one piece of a career advice to a young professional, what would it be? Career advice is maybe the, you know the thing that comes to mind is I had a young um, consultant call me and they said you know I'm at McKinsey actually and I don't know if I want to be here anymore and I started asking questions. And I will say that the error that that young person was making, um, not that young actually, but um, uh, the, the, at least in my opinion, was that you know they had all their lives done hard things. Um, and in fact, I advocate for doing hard things. And like I advocate that children learn to do hard things. But I think one danger of like just figuring that you should just do the hard thing no matter what is that you um, sometimes overlook your strengths. And when I talked to this person about what they were naturally interested in, where their attention gravitated um, when they had free time with things that were easy for them, you know, they kind of discounted them as like, well, obviously you don't make career choices based on that. There's an expression in sports that you should race your strengths and then train your weaknesses. And my advice to young people is to take an accounting of your strengths and then put yourself in a career where those are going to be raced on a daily basis. But no matter what you pick, I mean, even Usain Bolt, who has many natural strengths for being a sprinter, had weaknesses. And after he chose track, he then had to work on you know, his core because he has scoliosis. So he had to remediate that. And, and, and the, the key here is that it's not about always choosing the path of greatest resistance. But in fact, choose the path of least resistance and then work on those things that you have to work on. 
Interesting. That's great advice. Um, so, so it's now time for a student question. And today's question comes from Kaylee, who is a economics major from Massachusetts. So let's hear her question. Her question is, as someone who is just beginning their professional career, how do you balance advocating for your own ideas while respecting the knowledge and expertise of those around you? This is a great question. You know, the balance between listening and talking is is one way to think about that question. And I like to say when I give talks, I can't listen and talk at the same time. Frankly, I'd prefer to listen because I learn more, but I'm also here to say something um, and, and be useful. I would suggest as a rule of thumb that young people do more listening than speaking at the beginning only because um, you can't listen and talk at the same time. And you really need to know everything there is to be known in order to make a useful contribution. You know, once once you have figured out that in a particular situation for a particular problem that you know your your company or your organization is working on, that you've heard what there is to be what there is to be listened to, and then you have something to say, then of course don't hesitate. Um, maybe maybe one other piece of advice, which is now you have something to say, you've listened a lot, you have something to say, you have a contribution, I would write it down. And I would write it down in the way that Jeff Bezos recommends, which is to craft a memo that you work on until it is extremely clear and precise and share your thoughts that way. I have typically found that young employees are not as, and nobody is honestly, including me, as articulate in in spoken conversation than they are in written word. Um, and so this is an opportunity for you to economize on the time that anyone would need to spend listening to what you have to say um, and also allows you to put your your best argument forward as forcefully as you can. All right, great. That's re- that's really good advice. I'm sure Kaylee will be uh, will will appreciate that. And so uh, we're nearing the end of our chat, and now it's time for what we call a quick fire round. Uh, I'm going to ask you five super quick questions, and you can just answer the best you can uh, off the top of your head. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. So number one, what gets you motivated at work? The idea that this has meaning and purpose. That I will go to my uh, my deathbed, you know, working on something that matters. What's a piece of advice someone gave you earlier in your career that you didn't take, but you wish you did? Professor told me once, everyone's life tells a story. Don't worry so much about telling the right story or even the best story. Try to tell a story that you're proud of. Um, and I have, I have mostly taken that advice, but sometimes I forget. <laughs> Um, what makes a good mentor in your mind for young professionals? I think a great mentor is first and foremost a model of what you're trying to be yourself. You know, if you want to be a kind person, then find a mentor who's especially kind. If you want to be an efficient person, find a mentor who's especially efficient. What were the best and worst parts of your college experience? I know that's a big question, <laughs> but uh, as best quickly as best you can, with best and worst parts. I think the best part of my college experience is that I learned to learn and I learned that, you know, my ability to learn was not limited by my SAT score or, you know, where I went to school for high school, but just really limited by my own openness to, to, um, to, you know, to learning, you know, new strategies, new techniques. So I learned to learn. I, got, I developed a lot of confidence. And maybe my worst part was that I was lonely. I was like really, really lonely. 
really lonely and I, you know, and unhappy for for large parts of my undergraduate career. And that I think is is not to say that I hope anybody else out there is is as lonely as I was. But if you are, and it's really hard for you, you're not alone. I, I know a lot of people who who struggle, and um, it generally gets better. Um, I, you know, I think that's that's advice that that'll be really appreciated because you know that's the kind of thing a lot of people might not talk about, but you know they might feel. And our final question is. If if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice uh, you'd give to the twenty year old college version of yourself? If I could give one piece of advice to my twenty year old younger self, I would say, uh, you know, find a few people. You know, it doesn't have to be a million people. Maybe one person who you really want to invest and have a better relationship with. There were a couple of people that I now look back and say, you know what? I wish I had this person as an old friend on speed dial, and um, our lives kind of, you know, uh, separated, and I hardly ever talk or see that to them or see them. So, um, you know, relationships. I will tell you, as a scientist, are the most important predictor, the strongest predictor of being happy. And so, don't underinvest in friendship um, when you are at the age that you are now. Okay. So uh, we're at the end of our chat. And I want to uh, thank you so much for, for being our guest today. Uh, can, you, can you tell uh, listeners how they can learn more about you and the work you do? Absolutely. If you want to see the work on grit and other work on how to develop into a thriving um, individual, you can visit characterlab.org. And we put everything up there, including things that I've written for free. Awesome. Thank you so much again for taking the time. And, and I really enjoyed hearing what you had to say. And I know, I know um, our listeners will as well. Thank you. I love this conversation. It was great. Thank you for listening to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom. If you're interested in learning more about the work that I do and helping people step outside their comfort zones and transition successfully into the professional world, please visit my website, www.andymolinsky.com. That's A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And also feel free to email me directly at andy at andymolinsky.com with any feedback or ideas for guests for future podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Brandeis University's International Business School. By teaching rigorous business, finance, and economics, connecting students to best practices, and immersing them in international experiences, Brandeis International Business School prepares exceptional individuals from around the globe to become principled professionals in companies and public institutions worldwide. Thank you so much for listening.